I was just thinking I probably won't see this uh, configuration of beings again. So I guess I better make it good, huh? (laughs) So here we are, day six, seven day retreat. So you're probably at the stage now where you're doing what we tend to do, what our body-mind systems tend to do, right? We kind of look back and we review and we, it turns over in our mind and we kind of try to figure out how we did. (laughs) Did we do good? Did we do bad? You know, occasionally, There's some representational thinking that goes on as part of this process. So if you are thinking, for instance, uh, how to display what's happened here on your t-shirt, you might have a label on it that says something like, I survived a seven-day silent retreat. Ask me how. (laughs) Or maybe your t-shirt would say something like, I survived a seven-day retreat. Don't ask me how. (laughs) Or maybe it would say something like, I'm not sure I did survive. Ask me later. It can take a while to figure out whether you really did survive it, huh? So we do tend to do this thing of evaluating and trying to figure out how it went, which is always quite interesting to me because if we're doing that kind of evaluation of something like this experience, what standards do you use? How do we, how do we go about thinking of that? So there, there's kind of a joke in some of the teaching groups and the, the joke goes like this. Um, somebody that knows a particular person comes up and uh, asks about this Uh, yogi on retreat asks about a friend or a former student and says how is yogi X doing? and the response is always well they haven't left yet (laughs) (laughs) which is not to say there can't be good reasons to leave but that's kind of well they haven't left yet and then everybody laughs You know, because you have to have your standards of, for success as a Dharma teacher, you know. I mean, I, I figure, you know, if I, if I don't have more than two people run screaming from the hall with their faith completely destroyed, then it's a success. I've given a good talk. And then, of course, uh, since you've been gone for a while, you're going to have the situation where your friends and families are going to ask about what you've been up to. So, you know, this will be another opportunity for you to summarize your experience, but it it might require some translation on your part. So what are you going to say? You're going to say, uh, well, you know... uh, the sloth and torpor levels were pretty high every afternoon. But when the aversion kicked in, 
my energy level went way up. Right? Woke right up then, right? Or maybe you'd say something like, uh, you know, I was no- noticing the breath at the abdomen, the rising and falling, and then I realized I was lost in fantasy for 20 minutes. And then awareness returned, and just as I was getting that, the thing going with the breath, and the bell rang. And then I got up and I went to my favorite walking place, and there was somebody who was already there. Or maybe you'd say something like, well, you know, the food was good for vegetarian, but (laughs) they really needed more prunes than an espresso machine. (laughs) I mean, you got to say something, right? So this experience, though, is difficult to describe. You know, there's a popular book out now by a guy named Sam Harris called uh, 10% Happier. And in an interview that uh, I read, um, he talked about being on his first retreat uh, like this. I think it may have even have been here, actually. And, and he was asked to describe how it was. And he said, well, you know, it, w- it was kind of, for the first number of days, it was kind of like being dragged behind uh, a motorboat. <laughs> <laughs> and then I started to figure out, you know, how to use the skis, and it got (laughs) a little bit better, but not easy. So in in evaluating this retreat for yourself, first, you should appreciate your audaciousness to do something like this, right? Because you've done a hard thing. So, you know, we asked you to let go of your supports and your diversions and all the things that you usually do to keep yourself occupied and to do, you know, (laughs) self-soothing. You know, we took away your cell phones, you know, and it's, and just be with your experience. And it's really hard to do that, especially if you're still learning how to ski, so to speak. And it's true on first retreats, you really drink a lot of lake water. And you do on subsequent retreats too, especially at certain points in practice, you just do. So these things, these retreats are often very different than what you may have imagined they were going to be like before you got here. So when people are coming on retreat or thinking of coming on retreat, they often have particular hopes or expectations. So I'll give you some common ones and you may resonate with them. So one might be they want to relax and (laughs) de-stress, you know. Maybe they want to experience pleasant and beautiful states in the body and the mind that are spoken about in the teachings or that you kind of hear through the Dharma grapevine, you know, there somebody had this experience and it was like, ooh, oh, better than sex, better than chocolate cake. You know, it's just unbelievable bliss. You know, and maybe some of that happens, you know, maybe there's some deeply pleasant experiences or, or maybe not. Maybe you got a good dose of the other kind. Or maybe you came here with some sort of 
<clears throat> desire to address or heal some illness or pain or physical or mental condition in particular. And you were hoping that if you came here, this would really help. There, there would be a breakthrough here. Maybe there would be a particular healing or a spontaneous regression or something like that. This looking to fix something is also a, a really common motivation. And of course it's a common motivation. We as human beings suffer a lot and we don't want to suffer. Of course not. There's self-compassion in that. You know, and maybe some of that happens on retreat and maybe it doesn't. Or maybe there's the motivation to figure out some kind of significant life issue. You know, whether you go to graduate school or whether you don't go to graduate school, whether you get married or whether you don't get married, maybe you have a kid or you don't have a kid, whether you quit your job or you don't quit your job, maybe whether to come out to your parents, whether not to come out to your parents, you know, whatever it is. And maybe you get some insight on that topic, or maybe you don't. But usually you get insight on that topic when you're not directly chewing on that topic. Have you noticed that? It's when you're letting some deeper, broader whole system intelligence operate on what the whole system knows is a problem. That's when the bubbling up tends to be most reliable. Not when you're directly chewing on it out of anxiety. But that's okay, we all chew on it, right? So, these are all normal and understandable things that we human beings want to do. And why not try to use something like this for that purpose? And, but any uh, benefits you get along those lines from meditation are kind of a bonus. Not the point. So do you want your money back? (laughs) Grab that Donna check and rip it up. (laughs) So if you don't get that, if that's not the point, those things that probably powered a lot of you in coming here, if you don't get that, at least not in the way that you were hoping for, what, what did you get? What is the point of this insight meditation or this Vipassana practice anyway. So if I was going to say the actual purpose for the meditation that's done here, the primary purpose, although there are many side benefits as well, it would go along these lines. The point is to develop the capacity to skillfully connect to the predominant arising experience at any of the six sense doors in real time. I could say it's to learn to carry mindful awareness in the stream of our present tense experience. And when we can do this, we can know our life as it unfolds and relate to it in a wise, compassionate manner moment by moment. 
this is possible because we start to directly see which ways of relating to immediate experience cause suffering and which ways reduce it. And when it's clear what way of relating to things releases suffering, the mind starts to do it naturally. It starts to learn this at very deep levels. It starts to let go of futile resistance to what's actually happening, thus reserving its resources for skillful relationship to it. This is what's meant by liberation through non-clinging. The process of learning how to do this and of understanding in your own lab, running your own experiment in, with your own body and mind, why you would want to learn and what why you would want to learn how to do this is insight meditation. So both an understanding of why you would want to do this and how it releases suffering and then learning how to do it is the process of insight meditation. So then the question comes up, well what's left when the mind no longer clings? And the answer is a frictionless contact with reality. So the heart and mind is true to things as they are moment to moment, but without the burn, without the gripping, just in a state of clear seeing with maximal options for skillful responsiveness in terms of what is known. So if you're going to ask the question, well, what is developed in the heart and mind in this process of doing this, learning how to do it and doing it, gaining these competencies, the answer is many beautiful and wholesome qualities of mind. So when you think about what's been necessary for you to be able to do something like this, to participate in it as best you could given the causes and conditions that were here for you, you realize it's not just a mechanical thing, right? That you had to bring up really deep qualities and emotional and psychic and mental reserves in order to engage in this kind of process, right? When you think of some of the things that you had to to bring forward It reads like a list of the five spiritual faculties I talked about in the last talk and the paramis and other wholesome qualities. So faith, some level of faith there, energy, virya, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom, generosity, ethical conduct to hold the container of the retreat, renunciation in the letting go of your usual life and your distractions and diversions, courage, patience, truthfulness about what you are actually experiencing, resolve, loving kindness, compassion, and some degree of equanimity 
So it's an interesting thing that in the process of developing and opening this wisdom path, which is what insight meditation is, all of these other skillful, wholesome, beautiful qualities of mind are both engaged and strengthened and beautified. So even though in a certain kind of way, when you look at this process where you're just turning towards your immediate experience and knowing as it is moment by moment, may seem kind of dry, it's actually really working the deepest levels of your psyche at the same time that you're cultivating wisdom. Because in order to be able to do this, you have to deploy everything you've got, right? Did you find that yet? You had to really like get in there and like, well, am I doing this or am I not doing this? Well, I don't think I can do this, but now I'm going to try to do this. Okay, that last one was really bad, but you know, okay. <laughs> so let's talk about what actually happened here. We had the, the first go around where I talked about what what I've seen to be common uh, motivations that bring people to do this kind of thing. And I said, you know, stress reduction, desire for pleasant or novel experiences, healing of the mind and body, life uh, choice, decision-making, that kind of thing is common motivators for this kind of thing. And then I said, well, and what's the outcome when you use those criteria to measure your success or failure. And I said, well, maybe yes, maybe no, maybe some benefit, maybe not so much, maybe a lot of benefit in a a few cases along those, uh, those vectors. So then the question is, what did you get if you didn't get what you thought you wanted? Are you asking yourself that? Should I tell you? (laughs) Before I do this, I'll, I'll read you a poem, which is a... the voice of a a yogi who actually came into confrontation with all the difficulty on retreat, the same kind of difficulties that you did and came up against it. So this is called the Lament of a Discouraged Yogi. (laughs) I try to make it happen, the breath is being bad. I pull out a mental ruler and give my mind a whack. It doesn't like that feeling and so it pushes back. It heads for sloth and torpor and takes a little nap. (laughs) And when I do awaken, self-judgment is on high and then a flare of anger and doubts about the ride. I'm really, really trying to make it happen right. But since it isn't going well, I'm calling it a night. (laughs) This isn't going to happen. This stuff is just a crock. I could try ayahuasca, though that can be quite rough. (laughs) 
I'm looking for a vision, a sign that I'm okay. I think I'll check my cell phone. Maybe God is called today. (laughs) But since you haven't had access to your cell phones, you've had the benefits of more, less interrupted practice. So I'll tell you some things that I think that you may have gained from this experience, and these are just from my observation. So these you might call insights of a sort, or a reminder of a sort, or um, a way your whole, whole system intelligence might have... Uh, gone to some noticing about this whole process in a way that's not quite conscious yet, but this may help you. Or maybe it is conscious. So what you may have come to understand is that the untrained mind is a really powerful and wild horse, that it's best to learn how to ride it since we're on it, and some understanding of where to get writing instructions. <laughs> okay. Another thing is a realization we are very often lost in thought of an unnecessary and unhelpful nature to the almost complete exclusion of other forms of experience. Was that a shocker to anybody? to realize how dominant that really is, that kind of lost in space and that swirl of stuff, kind of half-conscious, disembodied, disassociated thought. How often that's the case. So perhaps on retreat, another thing that you've received is a reminder that we actually have five other senses and that it can be refreshing and grounding to learn to rest there. Anybody have the experience of rediscovering your other senses? Seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling. The ones that we don't touch in with much because we're in the swirl so often. So perhaps another thing that you've gained is... uh, an identification of some of your own personal dominant forms of conditioned suffering. Like when your mind is really suffering, when it's really going for the wild ride, where it's going? Is it going to aversion? If so, is it, does it go to fear? Does it go to anger? Does it go to anxiety? Does it go to sadness? Does it go to desire? In which case, does it go to uh, sense craving? Does it go to pleasant thoughts? Does it go to food? Does it go to wanting sex? I mean, where does it, does it go to wanting your phone? Does it go to wanting uh, to go home? Does it go to, where does it go? When you're really suffering, where does it go? Or is your dominant form of suffering more uh, delusion where the mind just kind of goes to confusion and kind of rumbles around and this and that without uh, a lot of connectivity to what's going on. Tipping more towards the sloth and torpor and 
dream, dreamy things to, uh, to no point. So that's good information to have, right? It's good information to know how the suffering tends to come up. Because if you know that, that means that you are recognizing it. And when you're recognizing it, it means that there's the potential for the actual establishment of mindfulness in relationship to it. And if there's mindfulness in relationship to it, that means you can learn how to figure out how to work with it. How to mitigate the suffering in relationship to that particular pattern. And over time, really move in the direction of uh, taming your reactivity in relationship to it and your identification with it. So that's important to know what the tendencies are. So perhaps you have noticed and had some recognition that whatever we experience whatsoever is impermanent and will pass away at some point. So that neither the meltdowns that you've had here nor the sweet spots you've found here will last. Nor will anything else. How, when you think about your experience, the experience that you've had here, how many different mind states have you had? Right? Happiness, joy, interest, boredom, resentment, compassion, irritation, desire, generosity, sleepiness, wiredness, restlessness. How many different kinds of thoughts have you had? How many thoughts have you had? How many emotions have you had arise and pass away? How many different body sensations have you had arise and pass away? Where are they? They were there at one moment and now they're not. And when they're gone, they're really gone. Now there's something here new. Which brings to the other recognition that we're always in the present. Even with thoughts of the past or plans about the future, we're always in the present tense. There's no other place we could ever be. For the mind to even have a glimmer of that particular fact is very empowering. Because it really kind of cuts down the scope of what you need to feel immediately responsible for, doesn't it? Given that you can't do anything about what's done and you can't do anything directly about what you imagine might happen next. Maybe you can put some causes and conditions in play. You know, you can do things but it's not here yet, right? Well, that kind of reduces the the scope of the task, doesn't it? When you realize it's present tense always. Whatever you're attending to, whatever you can experience is always a present tense experience. And that that present is the place of power. So you may also have gotten some hint 
that pain and suffering, difficulty that's met with uh, mindfulness, investigation, and compassion is a lot less suffering and painful than when it's met with aggression and col- or collapse. Have you noticed that? That how you meet what arises makes a real difference in whether suffering increases or decreases. And perhaps you've noticed the importance of having a kind mind both towards yourself and towards what you're experiencing. And when you can remind and remember the mind to uh, include metta in the field when things are hard, it makes a tremendous difference, doesn't it? It's a really different thing when you're going through hard stuff and the mind uh, kind of turns on itself in uh, aggression or kind of abandons the ship because the seas are heavy. When the mind is trained to metta and compassion, you've got a tremendous resource there. You've got a mind of, that's reliably kind to itself. Huge difference. So, maybe you've come to an understanding that when you're seeing things arise in the present moment. They're arising because of causes and conditions, some of which are visible and many of which are not. Right? That whatever you're experiencing is not arising randomly. It's lawful. It's lawful. And you don't control it so much. Why? because you don't control most of the causes and conditions. A lot of them are rooted in the past. There's some contributions you can make in the present by how you attend to what's happening. But for instance, to say, you know, I'm not gonna fall asleep this afternoon because I don't wanna fall asleep this afternoon. Well, the resolve is a good, a good piece. That's a good contribution. <laughs> That's a skillful contribution to the situation, but it's not the only thing going on, right? So there's some, there's some clarity, some clarification that can start to emerge about you know, what our actual span of control is in the present tense with different kinds of experiences. That's a huge relief, right? Because a lot of the churning that we do is an attempt to exercise control that we actually don't have in the immediate sense, right? It's an interesting thing to be a human being because if you kind of consider the Buddha's teachings, in the, in the long range, we have a tremendous amount of influence because we can set by what we choose to attend to and what we choose to develop, we can set a vector for the whole direction of our development, where it's going to go. You know, we can, we can actually set in play causes and conditions to incline the mind to move in the direction of awakening and liberation. And actually, over time, by 
turning the mind consistently in that kind of way and practicing in that kind of way, guess what? It actually goes there. So we have ultimate control. And immediate control? Not so much. That's very interesting to me. Hmm. Immediate control, not so much. Ultimate control, yeah. But it all depends on how we engage with the present. What understanding and what of our available resources we engage and deploy. So, some of the other things related to this is maybe you've noticed that there's not a master control switch to available to govern what arises. This is just another face of this, right? But what we can do is actually respond and participate skillfully what's, with what is happening in the present. That that's where the power actually is. And did you notice that when we drag a fixed view of self into things, that we complexify and distort the essential simplicity of the present experience for no useful purpose. Have you noticed this in your retreat? You know, the more like the self-sense was really in there activated and, you know, the egoic sense was like really engaged with what was going on, the worse it got. (laughs) This is my imagination. The more it's in there, like, okay, I really got to, you know, I got to, you know, I can't go home and tell them that I, you know, I couldn't take it or I couldn't handle it or I, you know, I don't want to be the only one to da-da-da-da-da-da-da or, you know, what am I going to say at the end of the retreat, blah-da-da-da-da-da-da, right? You know, if I, if I can't do this, this sitting, then that means that da 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 you know, if this happens one more time, then... Uh, uh, or maybe you never had those kinds of thoughts. Maybe, maybe it was just the person sitting next to you. So another thing that you could notice is that suffering plus resistance equals greater suffering. So it's already hard, it's already difficult, it's already unpleasant, and then the whole system, you know, slams on the brakes and says, no! It's just like pumping the suffering pump. Here it comes, right out the spout, you know, some extra, just in case you needed it. And have you noticed that uh, suffering plus mindfulness plus compassion equals less suffering? Right? A mind that has the capacity to actually be present in a balanced experience with difficulty and can actually look at it 
and say, well, what is this? What's happening right now? What is, what is, the, what is this in particular right now? How is it being? This is hard, hard now. This is difficult. This is painful. When the mind recognizes that when there's difficulty, you kind of get the, the feeling like there's some uh, adult supervision there, don't you? <laughs> like, oh yeah, it's hard, baby. Oh, that's okay. That's all right. That's just a big dog barking, you know. <laughs> and then maybe you've come forward with an understanding that the mind can set the direction of its own development by summoning mindfulness and other wholesome mental factors. Since things are lawful, when we plant wholesome seeds, we gain the resultant fruit. And this planting is done in the present because there is no other place available for it to happen. So if it's not happening in the present, it's not happening. So I could go on with this, but, you know, you should do your own list. And I'm... I'm serious about this. You should spend some time, like soon, soon, to actually sit down and review for yourself, in particular, what particular things that you've noticed along these lines, right? Because I'm sure you have these, and they may seem very simple, but they're very important. So you've gone through this whole week-long process of trying to be present, trying to observe, trying to learn, trying to be consistently mindful. And you've seen a lot of things. You've seen a lot of things arise and pass away. You've made effort in a lot of different kinds of ways. You've had a lot of different states come, you've had a lot of different states go. You've had experiences where things felt more free and you've had experiences where things felt more contracted or more uh, contorted, more difficult. And what were the different ingredients in those experiences as far as what you noticed your own body-mind system was contributing to the present? So I said earlier, you know, one of the things that happens in this process, as the mind tries in different ways to relate to what it's experiencing, it starts to notice, with the pointing out of the teachings and the teacher, you know, how it really gets wound up and bound up and further enmeshed in suffering, and how it could relate in a different way or take a different view or take a different approach to what's actually present and do the opposite, move in the direction of unbinding, move in the direction of letting go. So what have you learned there? What have you noticed for yourself? There was some resonance in the room when I was reading some of these things, right? Some of it seemed like, oh yeah, yeah, no, you mention it, kind of notice that. But what have you noticed? And it may take a while for it to sift through, right? Because you're still 
more in the nonverbal realm. But it's really good to review close, close as you can to the time where, where you've done the practice. This is part of the wise use of thought that's called reflection in the Buddhist system, where we kind of seal in the understanding or some of the understanding that we've received from all these different inputs of body and mind. We seal it in on a more cognitive level. So all of this could take a while for you to really digest and assimilate, but it will assimilate for you. And you might not be able to say it, but you do, you have learned something from this experience. Some important things, some important things, even though they may be nonverbal at this point. So you're wiser than you were when you got here. So let me just read a poem to close. And this is a poem by uh, William Stafford called The Thread. There is a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread, but it's hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you can do can stop time's unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. And lastly, um, a reading from a Dhamma talk given by Ajahn Chah to a woman dying in her home. Ajahn Chah was a great uh, Thai forest master, a monk who lived way in the wilds and uh, was a very important figure in the training of many Western monastics. So he went to visit this woman in her house because he was the, the local teacher and that was part of his role, almost to be a a pastor in addition to um, being the head of a monastic group. And this is what he told her. This is titled Our Real Home. You should understand that even the Buddha himself with his great store of accumulated virtue could not avoid physical death. Like household utensils you've had for a long time, cups, saucers, plates, and so on. When you first had them, they were clean and shining, but after using them for so long, they're starting to wear out. 
Some are already broken, some have disappeared, and those left are wearing out. It's their nature to be that way, your body is the same. It's like the water of a river, it naturally flows downhill, it never flows uphill, that's its nature. If a person was to go and stand on the riverbank and want the water to flow back uphill, he would be foolish. Wherever he went, his foolish thinking would allow him not peace of mind. He would suffer because of his wrong view, his thinking against the stream. If he had right view, he would see that the water must inevitably flow, and until he realized and accepted that fact, he would be bewildered and frustrated. The river that must flow down the gradient is like your body. Having been young, your body's becoming old and meandering towards its death. Don't go wishing it were otherwise. It's not something you have the power to remedy. The Buddha told us to see things the way they are and let go of our clinging to them. Take this feeling of letting go as your refuge. Anyone can build a house of wood and bricks, but the Buddha taught that sort of home is not our real home. It's only nominally ours. It's home in the world and it follows the ways of the world. Our real home is inner peace. An external material home may well be pretty, but it's not very peaceful. There's this worry and then that, this anxiety and then that. So we say it's not our real home. It's external to us. Sooner or later, we'll have to give it up. It's not a place we can live in permanently because it doesn't truly belong to us. It belongs to the world. Our body is the same. We take it to be a self to be me or mine, but in fact, it's not really so at all. It's another worldly home. Your body has followed its natural course from birth until now. You can't forbid it from doing that. It's the way it is. Wanting it to be any different would be like wanting a duck to be a chicken. When you see it's impossible, the bodies have to get old and die, you will find courage and energy. So you needn't worry about anything because this isn't your real home, it's only a temporary shelter. Understand this point. All people, all creatures are preparing to leave. When beings have lived an appropriate time, they must go on their way. Rich, poor, young and old, all must experience this change. What is important is that we must do as the Buddha taught and build our own home. Build your own home. Don't waver. Let go. Let go until the mind reaches the peace that is free from advancing, free from retreating, and free from stopping still. Pleasure is not your home. Pain is not our home. Pleasure and pain both decline and pass away. The great teacher saw that all conditions are impermanent, and so he taught us to let go of our attachment to them. When we reach the end of our life, we'll have no choice anyway. We won't be able to take anything with us. So wouldn't it be better to put things down before then? They're a heavy burden to carry around. Why not throw off that load now? 
Why bother to drag these things around? Let go. Relax. So what I wish for you is an understanding of the deep power of letting go and how in this letting go nothing is lost which you truly own. May the merit of this talk offered and the merit of the hearing of this Dhamma be a cause and condition for our own awakening and that of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.